Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And I'll read it. Jesus is preaching, and he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Okay. So last week we took our first look at this this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it really should be called the Disciples' Prayer. I'm not sure why they they named it that. Because this is His example for us to pray. Um, So we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. We get to this prayer And it's almost like Jesus pauses in the middle of teaching to give us some additional instructions, some practical instruction about prayer itself, what it is and how we are to do it. Because if you look at it, it's surrounded by a discussion about practicing righteousness, righteousness being our our behavior and the the things that we we do and practicing those things, uh, particularly in front of other people. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 6, you're going to see the, the main idea for this whole half of, the, of chapter 6, the whole first half of chapter 6. The main thrust of it is found in verse 1 of chapter 6 where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So that's the main point of this whole section of his sermon. And he gives us some examples. Remember, he talks about um, uh, giving alms before the poor, giving alms to the poor, giving, uh, giving uh, you know, financial gifts or whatever that you give to the poor, giving to the needy. And he says, you know, don't, don't be showy about that. Don't, don't sound a trumpet when you do it. He talks about prayer. Again, don't be showy about that. Don't, don't be superficial about it. And then he talks about fasting and how we shouldn't make a show of, of fasting. And we should do those things in secret. But in the middle of example on prayer, he stops to give us some practical instruction on what prayer is. Not just on what it isn't, but what it, what it is. In the middle of this example, we get, we get a, little, a little example prayer. So it's, I think it's worth slowing down to examine that prayer a bit. I mean, he, he kind of changes course, and we ought, that ought to raise our ears and our eyebrows, and we ought to look more carefully at it. It's also worth slowing down here because, let's face it, this particular piece of text from the Bible is almost universally known, at least in the Western world. I mean, everyone knows the Lord's Prayer. 
And if you don't know the Lord's Prayer, you've probably heard it before. Uh, we can, most of us in this room can probably uh, recite it from, from memory. Um, it's, it's been a part of our lives. We know it backward and forward. Uh, and because we know it from memory, because it's so prevalent, we can quote it and it's everywhere. The risk becomes then that it becomes common to us. You know, something is ubiquitous, something is everywhere, you just start to take it for granted. And so then we run the risk of just, just reading through this, and yeah, I know that, and not slowing down to see what it is that Jesus is saying and, and what it means for us. Um, so it, it's worth slowing down on purpose to look at, at the prayer. Last week I, I stressed to you that we should approach this as a framework and not as a script. We're just supposed to be looking at it as a framework. And um, uh, one of the big picture takeaways from last week was that it's clear that the prayer is mostly asking. That's what prayer is. It's mostly asking. Um, we shouldn't feel embarrassed or ashamed for asking God for help in our time of need, going to Him to ask Him to supply our needs or to help us where we don't, we don't understand or to help us through difficult times. We should never be embarrassed or afraid or ashamed to go to Him and ask Him for things. You're not burdening the Lord. It's not a burden for Him for you to cast your cares upon Him. That's what He told us to do. He is perfect in His ability to supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory, and it glorifies Him when we trust Him to meet our needs. That's where we were last week. When we consider the prayer, we look at the whole thing as a whole, there's something else that I notice that, it, that jumps out at me, and, and this, this may shock you when I say it, but it's not particularly impressive. It's not a particularly impressive prayer, is it? I mean, as far as flowery language goes and, and, you know, the length of the prayer and the eloquence of the prayer, it's just not all that impressive. I mean, what does it take? Maybe 20 seconds to read through it? 30 seconds if you really push those pauses, you know, the dramatic pauses? Um, I mean, there are other prayers in the Bible, church, that I, I would think if we just analyze them from a literary standpoint, they would rank much higher on the, on the scale, you know, in... Uh, Luke 1, Mary prays, and it's almost three times as long as this prayer that the Lord gives us. And if you look at the language that she uses in terms of eloquence and majestic language, it's on a much higher level than this one. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see the longest prayer that's recorded in Scripture. It's 40-some-odd verses, and it goes through historical events. It exalts in God as merciful and, and He's ready to forgive and it, it praises Him as a provider and, and a Savior and a Redeemer and a judge. It calls out the sins of the people and it even offers a prayer of repentance for those sins. I mean, if we're going to just, you know, examine the different prayer structures in the Bible and say, hey, you know, you guys read this one and pray this one, I think Nehemiah 9 would be probably at the top of the list. It's a, it's a heavy prayer. And of course, John chapter 17, Jesus himself offers a much longer, even more eloquent prayer than this example he gives us in, in Matthew 6. It's the, the prayer of the high priest, his high priestly prayer. And it's all about the glory of God and obedience and the kingdom. I mean, these grand, huge uh, uh, concepts and ideas, our assurance that we have for what God is doing through him. It's a 
great prayer, John chapter 17. If you go to pick a prayer and hold it up as an example for everyone else and say, hey, guys, look at this. We ought to pray this way. I think that the, the Lord's Prayer would probably not make it into most of our top three lists. It might make it into the top ten, and, but probably not for the right reasons. <laughs> oh, it's the Lord's Prayer. We better include that one. The, the fact of the matter is, is really, it's just too simple. I mean, for, to get the praise of man. It's just too simple. It's simple and it's sincere. And I'm bringing this up because of what Jesus says before giving us the Lord's Prayer. If you look in verse 7 of Matthew 6, he says, When you pray, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. They, they heap up, the Gentiles, they heap up empty phrases and many words. Don't Don't be like them. Don't pray like them. Then he says, so then pray like this. So I know that when we come into this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, coming into it, I know that at least in part, this is an example of how to pray without being a hypocrite. That's verses 5 and 6. And then how to offer a sincere prayer. That's verse 7. It's a counter example of empty phrases and many words thinking that because you have empty phrases, because you're eloquent, then you have an audience with God. So it's a counterexample of that. This prayer, the Lord's Prayer, it's short and simple and to the point. Can we agree on that? Why then do we think we have to labor (laughs) and fluff and just throw everything we've got into, into saying the right words? What does he say in that next verse? For your father knows what you have need of before you ask it. He knows what you need. I heard Paul Washer put it this way when he said how to pray, and I really liked it. He said, pray until you can pray, and then pray until you have prayed. So how long should we pray? Pray until you can pray, and then pray until you have prayed. So, you know, what we have to do is be sincere. God is not giving us any, any, you know, ideas about how long your prayer ought to be. In fact, he says, he cautions us against it, heaping up empty words and, or empty phrases and many words. Sometimes, though, it takes a little more time in order to get yourself into a place of real sincerity with God. Pray until you can pray, and then pray until you have prayed. For different people, you know, depending on, on what kind of junk you put into your mind all day or depending on what your current attitude is, you know, that may require a longer period of time. It may require a shorter period of time. It may require that you sit and meditate for a while to, to, to kind of clear your thoughts and get, get yourself focused on, on what it is you're about to do. You, you may need to build precautions around yourself so that you can get your mind on Christ in order to communicate with him. And that, that may mean that you need to take a few minutes and, and listen to worship music before you approach God in prayer because we want to approach him rightly. That, mean, that may mean that you actually take time and sing to God. I know I've done that uh, when I go into my, my prayer closet. Sometimes I'm just not feeling it. And so offering a, a song of praise or worship gets me in the right attitude. Sometimes... Singing to God is good. Sometimes you've got to read Scripture. 
Um, whatever you need to do to get yourself in an attitude of prayer, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, some might object and say, well, isn't that kind of fake if you have to conjure it up? No, not at all. It's no different than getting dressed up for a date with your spouse. Let me put it this way. Ladies, he knows exactly what you look like at your worst. He's seen you in the first thing in the morning when your hair's not done and your makeup isn't on. And yet, when it's date night, do you not get all gussied up anyway? I know my wife does, and I sure appreciate it. I guarantee you he's not looking at you on date night thinking, why are you trying to deceive me? You don't look like that all the time. On the contrary, your husband appreciates it. And men, your wives appreciate it when you take effort to to make yourself look nice for your date. What it says to one another is this time matters. This time is important. And I want want it to be our best. I, I want to be my best for this time that I have with you. That's what it says to each other. That's what we're saying to God when we take time to try to get ourselves in the right mental frame to offer prayer to Him, to communicate with Him. We've had an appointment with God, and so, you know, I'm going to clear my head of all the things that distract me. I want this time to be with you. We want prayer to be effective in your life. Well, then make it sincere. Don't just go through the motions. Take the time to get ready to pray. But remember, sincere prayer does not mean lengthy prayer. <laughs> you don't have to labor all night. There's, sometimes there's a call for that. Jesus prayed all night. But don't feel like because I'm praying 15 minutes and I don't, you know, I'm done. Well, that's good. That's fine. As long as you've done it sincerely. Amen. So that's two sort of big picture items in prayer. Um, the takeaway, just looking at the whole prayer in general. One, it's mostly asking, should not be afraid to ask God. Number two, it doesn't have to be lengthy or eloquent, but simple and sincere. And I'm just going to go off, off my text here for a second and, and say simple and sincere as presented by Jesus flies in the face of some of the, the other teaching that you see out there today, people who are writing books on how to get what you want from God, how to get the healing that you need, how to get the financial stuff that you need, and they'll tell you, you've got to say these certain words, or you need to speak to, you need to know what your diagnosis is, so you can speak directly to that diagnosis, and that's why you're not healed, because you're not speaking directly to your diagnosis, and that is, that's malarkey. That does not follow Scripture. What they've done is reduced Scripture, reduced prayer to um, incantation. If it mattered the words that you say, then the witches can do that. Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So when you say, God, I hurt, you don't have to be able to name why you hurt. Do you understand? I don't want you to... The problem with that kind of prayer is that it it takes the power away from God. And it puts the responsibility on me. And I don't, that's not the God in the Bible. A lot of people believe in that God. And that's not the God in the Bible. 
So let, let's, let me get off that before I get in trouble. Um, let's shift focus. We have some elements of sincere prayer, this prayer that Jesus has given us. We'll look at the individual elements, and uh, I think the best way to do that is to just go top to bottom. Um, again, he gives us a framework, not a script. So number one, we talked about this last week, if we're going to go to God in prayer, it's necessary for us to know who it is that we are praying to, to be aware of who it is that we're praying to. What does the prayer start with? Our Father in heaven. So it's, we have to understand, prayer is not just speaking words out into the universe. It's not calling on some nebulous, mysterious, divine power. We're not, we're not appealing to our good feelings or to some kind of positive vibes or to some new age mysticisms or anything like that. You're talking to God, the creator of the universe, who is our Father in heaven. And because we get to call him Father, that necessarily implies some kind kind of intimate relationship, the intimacy that a father has with his child. Amen. Amen. And as a daddy, I can tell you that is pretty intimate. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I love my kids, and I would do anything for them. Amen. Though it hurt me, I'd do it for them if it meant they're good. Amen. So we're talking to our loving, eternal, heavenly father, and that's important that we understand that because that brings with it an intimacy and a tenderness that um, you wouldn't otherwise have. See, that's the problem. Sometimes we have too familiar of a relationship with God. We don't, we don't see that he is, this is the creator of the universe, the judger of our soul. And on the other hand, we, don't, we see him as, as uh, too lofty. He's way out of reach. He's the creator of the universe. He's the judger of my soul. He's Father. Amen. Father does both. He loves and he corrects. Mm-hmm. And he corrects because he loves. Amen. We went over that some last week. We should be asking him for things. We should be asking his counsel. We should be talking to him because he is Abba. That's Daddy. And it glorifies him when we trust him by coming to him. Now, does this mean that you have to say those words when you pray, Our Father or Father, when you approach God in prayer? Of course not. But you have to know to whom it is that you are praying, and your attitude must be Godward. Prayer is Godward. If it's not Godward, it's not prayer. You're just wishing. You're just speaking idly if your attitude isn't Godward. He has to be focused. So, you know, I mean, go throughout your day. The Bible says pray without ceasing, right? So when it's time to pray because something just happens and you need to call upon the Lord, are you, are you going to stop? And the, Our Father who art. No, you just call out to God. But the thing is, you know you're calling Godward, Amen. right? You're not just speaking into the ether. That's, that's different than stubbing your toe and thinking, I wish that rock hadn't been there. That's just wishing. So our, our prayer is Godward, a Godward attitude. 
Otherwise, we're just speaking idly. I told you last week that when he says our Father in heaven, that's one of only two truly declarative statements in the whole of the Lord's prayer. The rest of them are requests. So prayer, sincere prayer, is Godward. And if it's Godward, it's his attention that we seek and not other people's attention that we seek. Hence, Jesus' caution, when you pray before others, don't pray to be seen by them. Right? Because if you do that, then you've gotten your reward. You won't get any reward from your Father in heaven. It's His praise you seek. It's God's praise, not your own praise. It's God's glory, not your own glory. That We see that in the second line of the prayer. Hallowed be your name. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Amen. It would be better translated, let your name be hallowed. It's a request. I want you to receive glory. I want you to be glorified. God, I'm coming to you, and I want you to be praised. I have needs. There's a reason that I'm praying to you. I have needs. I have desires. I have wants. I've got, I've got cares that I need to lay upon you. So, Father, whatever you do to me or for me or through me, I want you to be praised. Not, not for me to be lifted up, not for my, for my praise, for your praise, for your glory, whatever you do. Boy, look, if we, could, if we could figure out how to pray that way, we'd see a lot more things happen in our lives. The Bible says when you ask, you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lust. So we're not praying for the glory of God. We're praying to make ourselves either more comfortable or more prominent or we want that better job. Why do you want the better job? So we can have more money. Why do you want more money? So you can have a bigger house. Why do you want a bigger house? So you can, I don't know, have better prestige. What does it have to do with the gospel or the glory of God? We pray for the glory of God. Let your name be hallowed. Let it be for your glory. Then we just follow the logical progression in in the text. If we continue reading to verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, those are requests. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth. Just like your will is done in heaven, let it be done here on earth. Not my will, but your will. Sovereign will. Remember, he is Lord and master and king and ruler. And if you're a child of God, then you are a citizen of his kingdom, not of this world. So as citizens of his kingdom, what do we desire? We desire his will, his sovereign will. If we pray in a sincere and and simple prayer, as Jesus has demonstrated this to us, we, we have to know who we're praying to. We seek his glory in all things, and we seek his will in all things. Not what I want, but what you want. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just before they came to take him away to be crucified, what did he say? Lord, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And here's the thing. Jesus knew what the Father's will was when he prayed that. So I have my desires, I have my wants, and gosh, that, that's a, we see Jesus at a very vulnerable place there. You know, in the garden, he kept going back to the disciples. He said, can you not stay awake with me one hour? And he, he told them, pray that you won't fall into temptation. And he, they kept going to sleep. Amen. And he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And then he goes and he prays, Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming. He knew what the cup was. It's a very vulnerable moment in in Jesus, and it shows us that we can be vulnerable with God. You know, we put on airs for everybody. We don't want anyone to know that we have weaknesses. We don't want anyone to know that we have struggles. There are things that that we know that God has called us to do that we're just, I I don't know. I don't know if I have it. I'm scared of that. Jesus gives us an example in the Garden of Eden. You don't don't have to keep that from the Lord. You can tell him that you're afraid. Do you think Jesus was afraid? I mean, they were going to, he knew what was going to happen. And so he says, God, I know this is coming. <laughs> I mean, he had already told his disciples multiple times that the, they were going to murder him and that he was, he was going to rise again. He told them that. So he, he already told them this so that they would know that when it happened, it was, it was God's will. So he knew God's will going into it. And yet he said, not my will, but your will. So he's not just throwing this out there saying, okay, God, you know, I'd rather this happen, but I'm just going to leave it up to you, and, and maybe you'll answer my prayer, and maybe you won't. And, and whatever happens, happens, and I just got to be ready for that and accept that. No, he said, not my will, but your will, knowing what his will was, what was going to happen. Amen. He's going to go to the cross. He knew it, and yet he still said, not my will, but thy will. And if our Lord can pray that, ought we not to? Knowing what he was facing? Obedience. Prayer calls us to obedience. How can we know, you might ask? I mean, we can give Jesus a pass because he was the literal son of God. um, So he knew the will of God, being God in the flesh. And you think, well, how, how does that work for me? How can I possibly know what God's will is? Can I tell you that, that you have a way, and it's called your Bible? Amen. Amen. Um, did you know God has already spoken, and it's in your, your Bible, if you just read it? I'm just one example from the Scriptures. Uh, there are more, but for the sake of time. Luke 16, Jesus, he tells a story of the rich man and Lazarus. You all know the story. They both die, right? And the rich man goes to hell because he was a really evil, wicked guy. And he wasn't kind to the poor. Lazarus was a poor man with leprosy. And he went to, to be in Abraham's bosom. The rich man, in his anguish out of hell, he looks up into Abraham's bosom. And he sees Father Abraham standing with Lazarus. And he says, Father Abraham, would you please send Lazarus to my family who are still alive and warn them, tell them, to, you know, ask, tell them to repent and to, to follow God and, and, and to be righteous so that they won't wind up here with me. And so what does Abraham say? He looks at him and he says, well, um, you know, they haven't listened to Moses and the prophets, so why would they listen to anybody else? In other words, they are, they've already heard from the Lord. The Lord has already spoken to them. He's already spoken. He's already told them repent. He's already told them to live righteously. He's already told them to follow him, but they haven't listened to the Lord. Why would he listen? Why would he listen to anybody else? Church, God has already spoken in his word. You want to know what his will is? Read his word. So many people go to God in prayer, and they'll get on their prayer closet, and they'll get on their knees, and, and they'll go to God and say, Lord, I need you to give me a sign. Tell me, give me a sign so I know which way to go, if I'm supposed to go to the left or to the right. And God's already spoken in his word. 
Jesus said, a faithless and perverse generation seeks for a sign. Why be sign seekers? We ought not to be. If you were word readers, you wouldn't be sign seekers. I just came up with that. That's tweetable. I mean, Micah 6, 8. That's a, that's a really good text for what does the Lord want for me to do? And we're all so concerned about being in God's will. Do you know what? If you do what is just and you love kindness and you walk humbly, you're in God's will. Whether you go left or right. Whether you take that job or you don't, you're in God's will. Whether you go to that college or you don't. Whether you get that degree or you don't. If you do those things. Has he told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? That's just one text, but man, it's a great one. It's a good one. It's a good compass for seeking God's will in our lives. We get so bent out of shape over, oh, I don't know, I should do this. Is it just? Does it love kindness? Does it walk humbly with God? Then do it. There's a lot more freedom in the word than what we like to think. Okay, let's move on. So we're talking about to our Father in heaven. It's His glory. It's His kingdom. It's His will. So then when we pray with a sincere heart, we come in a certain posture. We come as beggars with our hands open, calling out on the abundant mercy of our God. And we see this played out in two facets in the next two verses, verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, we ask, Lord, provide for me. Provide our daily needs. He is Father. We want His glory. We are His citizens of His kingdom. We want His will to be done. And we don't want things to get in the way of that. We don't want things to replace Him. We don't want things to become our pursuit. He is the pursuit. And so often what we do is we replace God with things. When we go to him, we say, Lord, provide for me. I want you to do these things for me so that I won't need you anymore. That's the end effect, the net effect usually. But we don't think that far ahead. I mean, can I just tell you something? The less that we need God, the less that we rely on him, the more likely it is that we will go astray from him the more likely it is we will turn from him. You don't believe me? Just read the Old Testament. It's all over the place in the Old Testament. The more prosperous they were, the more they turned away from God. The more desperate they were, the more they needed him, the more they had no strength of their own, no provision of their own. The crops are failing. The more they needed God, the more they turned to him and followed him. So we pray then, and we don't ask for excess. Look at the posture that Jesus says. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He says, come to God asking him for your basic needs, the basic things. So we, we don't ask for excess. We don't ask for riches that make us comfortable. What we ask for is provision. God, provide. And that's different than, than make me wealthy. Amen. That's different than prosper me. Provide for me. Provide for me for what? Provide for me to do what you have called me to do. Provide for me today. Provide for me to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only. Give me what I need to meet my necessary obligations. Give me what I need to do the necessary things that you have called me to do and you have instructed me to do. 
This section of the Lord's Prayer, these two verses, they, they're basically, we, we find them again, or we find them, uh, well, Jesus is repeating what we see in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. The, the writer says, Remove far from me vanity and lies, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Not, not poverty. I don't want to be broke, but don't, I don't want to be rich either. Feed me with food that's convenient for me, lest I be full. And here's the result of riches and too much food. I be full, and I have no need of thee. I deny thee. And I say, who is the Lord? Look what I've got. Who is God? I've got all this riches. Don't make me rich. Lord, lest I be poor and steal and take the name of God in vain. So I don't have enough. You haven't provided, and now I'm desperate. That's what he said, give us this day, our daily bread. Nothing wrong with riches. Riches are good. But why do we want them? That's the question. That's the question. And Lord, if you're a faithful steward of what God has given and you do well with what he's given, do not be surprised when he gives you more. Amen. That's principle. But he says, give me, when, when we approach him, give us this day our daily bread. There's a certain posture there that we come to him. Lord, don't, don't give me so much I can't handle. You know, I, I want your blessings, but I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to worship them. I want to worship you. Don't give me so much that's going to draw me away from you that I won't rely on you. And don't give me so little that I, I can't serve you. That give, me, give me what I need to do what you need me to do. Provide me what I need. Our biggest problem is that we tend to confuse our wants and our needs. So we pray and we ask God for wants, and then we start insisting on wants, and we start using prosperity language to name it and claim it, uh, to get our wants. And the whole time God is looking at us, you know, He's our Father, our good Father, and He's looking at us and He's saying, if, you know, I'm the God that will not give you a stone when you ask for bread. Amen. I'm the God that will not give you a scorpion when you ask for a fish. Why then do you think I would give you a scorpion because you think it's a fish? And that's a lot of times what we do. We're asking for things, thinking that it's a fish. This is what I need, Lord, and we have just conflated needs with wants. And he knows if he gave it to you, it'd be a scorpion to you. Sometimes we get discouraged in prayer because we're not getting what we want. We just fail to realize that what we might be wanting is that scorpion. And our loving Father, what He's doing is acting in mercy to protect us from us. Amen. <laughs> I have had many prayers over my life. Many requests I've made to the Lord in my uh, ignorance and immaturity uh, that God has flat out denied me. And thank and praise His name for that. Or maybe he's just said, not now. You know, there's some things that I'm still waiting on, and it just hasn't, hasn't come, come to pass. But it's, the door hasn't been shut yet. You know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, looking back on that as I get older, and the Lord has graced me with, with uh, a wisdom about how my own heart works, I can see he's, he's being merciful to me by not giving me what I wanted, it, but instead giving me what I, what I needed. In verse 12, let's move along. We see another aspect of this, of coming to God as a beggar. He says, and forgive us our debts. So sin is a crushing debt. and We have no hope of paying it. Amen. There's no righteousness. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. 
All of us are sinners. and We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we come to God praying, and we come to Him asking and trusting Him for mercy. This is not a transaction that we get to make. We, we're at His mercy. We come to God in prayer, and we shouldn't come to Him with bargaining chips. Some of us, we want to do that. We want to come and say, Lord, look at what I've done. I've done this for you. Why can't you help me out here? We want to come bargaining for Him, with Him. But we don't. We come as beggars needing His supply. Luke 18, Jesus gives us a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. He says in verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then said that it was the tax collector that went home justified. See, the Pharisee came with bargaining chips, didn't he? He came with currency in his pocket. He came to make a transaction with God. The tax collector came begging. He had nothing to offer. All he had was trust in, in the great mercy and steadfast love of God. And church, there's nothing that we can offer to pay for our debt of sin. But the good news is that Christ has done that for us. And that cannot be stressed enough. The Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that is a, man, that's a foundation text right there, if you ever saw one. That's one to, to just stake your life on. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. Faithful means He's reliable to do it. He's consistent to do it. He can always be trusted to do it. And not just faithful, but just. So we've gone from consistency now to legality. It's the just, moral, legal, right thing for Him to forgive you of your sins. Why? Because the price was paid. So it is just, moral, legal, and right for you to be forgiven of your sin. Boy, that should give you a confidence when we go to Him. Amen. That should give you confidence. We're, God is not bending the rules. How wonderful is that? We're not asking Him to make any kind of weird exceptions for us or to carve out exceptions for us. His judgments are righteous and sin has been judged and punishment has been paid in Jesus Christ. He forgave us our debts. So we, Lord, forgive us our debts. I can't pay this debt. But Christ can. It's not freedom to sin, certainly not, but it's freedom from sin and it's certainly freedom from the, the guilt of past sin. Freedom to live in righteousness. You see that in the last part of that verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So it's, it's part of the atonement that He purchased for you, obedience, to live in righteousness. And we can ask Him, God, forgive us our debts, knowing 
that he is faithful and just to do it and to cleanse us from any unrighteous past and to set us on the right path. The debt is forgiven, and it was a debt that we couldn't pay. And if a debt is forgiven, it's a debt that doesn't have to be paid. You don't have to live under that enormous pressure anymore because the bill is canceled. So as I'm closing this up today, I just if you haven't heard anything else I've said, hear this. Stop carrying around guilt for past sin. Go to God. Lay it at His feet. That's what He said. Cast your cares upon me. Take my yoke upon you. Confess it and know that He will take every bit of sin and count it as paid in full. What great confidence we should have in that. But I see the Christian walk in defeat because he can't walk in that. We want to be our own judge. And when we do that, we take God off his throne. And he has said, I am faithful and just, righteous to forgive. So we come to him as beggars, saying, God, I've got nothing, but you have everything. You supplieth not just my daily need, but my eternal one as well. There's a lot more to say, and we'll, we'll pick up in verse 12 uh, again next time um, as, we, as we continue through looking at forgiveness. Um, boy, that's a big one too, isn't it? Um, so let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you once again for your word. I pray that it has been light and life for us and that uh, you quicken us in our prayer, Lord, that, that we have an audience with you if we come to you with our heart and that that is an audience that is with the king of the universe and nothing is impossible for you. And Lord, we ask you to go with us today as we go our separate ways. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.